This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Damien Roussan, the founder and president of the Sorcery Institute that provides training and consulting for software development, along with other services and maintaining open source software. But there's really no way I'm going to be able to do justice to the experience and expertise that you have, Damien. And I reach out to you because your background and training is so impressive and so interesting. You've written books, you've frequented national labs, and you've built this empire completely focused around the question of how do we implement the best methods in software for research software projects? So first, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Before we talk about all the impressive things you're doing in the current day, let's start with your story of how you got to where you are now. Can you tell us about your younger self and how you got interested in research software or programming? Well, it just so happens that the first programming language I learned was Fortran, and that was at age 12 in 1979. And then I ventured into a lot of other different directions, programming in basic and doing some machine language programming in hexadecimal machine language for the Motorola 6502 processor. And ended up majoring in mechanical engineering, studied that all the way through to my PhD, but always maintained a really strong interest in software engineering. Fortran is really what sort of enabled me to come back to it full time, because when you are writing codes that are doing things like fluid dynamics, weather, climate, nuclear engineering, Fortran is very widely used, basically in all those fields that embrace computing early. What's not so common is for people in those fields to have much depth in software engineering, even though these days, if you're doing certain things, like for example, climate science, you might spend most of your time writing code if you're not doing observations. And yet most people don't have much formal training in software engineering. So what I was able to do is to sort of bring two passions together. One is for writing, I guess, heavily numerical scientific engineering type codes, but also for adopting modern software development practices that you know really have been less common until more recently in scientific computing work. So did you feel like you had a strong vision for what you wanted to do, or was it really a case of learning as you go, stumbling around, trying new things and figuring it out along the way? That's a very interesting question. I mean, I certainly knew that I always wanted to do something focused on software engineering for science. I didn't really have any idea how to do it. The term research software engineer really, as far as I know, didn't exist when I was in grad school uh, in the 90s. I really wandered down this path. I mean, initially, I was doing it nights and weekends, you know, so I was very fortunate that I did at one point have a research grant from the Office of Naval Research where the program manager was willing to make my book the chief deliverable on the project. And so that was extremely helpful. At the same time, I moved into management at Sandia National Labs, where the vast majority of managers don't maintain technical work for themselves. And so that's why I ended up feeling as though I was doing all the software stuff, you know, on, on nights and weekends. It was really kind of just by happenstance that I ended up going full time on this in a way. There was a company, the Numerical Algorithms Group, that's headquartered in the UK that was having a lot of discussions with me around how we might partner because they knew that I was doing a lot of work in modern Fortran. They have a Fortran compiler and a lot of Fortran code. And they mentioned that they have had a user training contract 
for the Hector Academic Supercomputer Service in the UK at the time. And so since we we're exploring ideas for working together and I had just finished writing this book and I said, okay, well, maybe I could teach a training course based on my book. And so I did that. And the first time around, you know, I flew over with one of my Sandia staff members. We did most of it on Sandia money and Nag covered our local expenses, our hotel and meals and taxi. And that was about it. And then when we came back from that, this was with my staff member, Carla Morris and I, we thought, well, okay, we've got all these materials put together. Why don't we do it again? So we ended up uh, teaching one at NERSC Supercomputer Center at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. Again, there was no fee associated with that. NERSC, I guess, bought refreshments uh, for the breaks. That was about it. But at the time I had a senior manager at Sandia who said, are you sure you want to keep teaching these classes as freebies or should we try to generate some revenue with this? You know, it's interesting because at the time I felt like a deer in the headlights and I thought I can't bring in revenue with this. She knows that she must be trying to kill it. <laughs> I've never actually checked back with her to find out what her motivations were, but it's one of those great lessons in life where sometimes someone who you think, you know, might not be doing you a favor, maybe doing you the biggest favor they could, because from there forward, we started charging for the courses. And eventually I realized that I could charge so much that I quit. <laughs> I was also very fortunate that Sandia has an entrepreneurial leave of absence program that gave me the ability to step out for up to three years with a guarantee that I could come back at any time at my last salary. So with that safety net, I jumped out there and started booking more training courses and charging more for them. And the training courses led to consulting agreements and the consulting agreements led to contract development, which is actually what has done the most to pay the bills over the last few years. I certainly didn't know exactly how to head down this path, but I would say it was a, a long time dream. I just didn't know how I'd get here. Wow, that is very impressive. And I'm really glad that safety net was there so you could sort of jump in and try something new. Let's unwrap some of what you said. You mentioned early on that you wrote a book, was it 2011? Yes. What prompted you to write that and what was that like? That's in some ways a, a funny story. I mean, again, I was trying to bring a couple of different fields together. There's people doing computational science broadly and including the engineering sciences. And then there's software engineering. And I only actually had two formal classes in software engineering. One was an undergrad class in Fortran and one in grad school called software engineering in C. The disconnect that I saw was that when I took an actual software engineering class in C in the computer science department, none of the examples were very relevant to the kind of coding that I needed to do. And vice versa, when I took a course in my specialty, computational fluid dynamics, we would talk a lot about algorithms, and the physics that we're trying to model. And then there would essentially be no discussion of how you would implement that algorithm in code. To some extent, that makes sense because when you look at traditional scientific programming, it's a fairly straightforward mapping of the algorithm into basically a flowchart and breaking off parts of your flowchart into procedures. And that's the traditional, what people call procedural way of writing code. You know, thinking about bringing these two fields together and trying to shine a light on a path forward for how to write better code. That's what prompted me to start thinking about writing a book. For years, I had been considering it, but hadn't actually done it. And it actually got to the point where walking into a bookstore became depressing. And I was teaching at the City College of New York at the time. So I was in Manhattan. So we had pretty big Barnes and Noble bookstores spreading across like four floors. And the problem was that when I, every time I walked into a bookstore, I was surrounded by thousands and thousands of examples of people who had already done what I had not yet done. <laughs> and I think when you get to that point, 
you kind of have no choice but to write the book. Yeah, the power of writing compels you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it's interesting hearing your story because you're wearing many hats to be a little cliche. You're being a manager when you sure. started consulting. You also sort of probably, I'm guessing, took on people, but then you also were a professor in a national lab. Yeah. How did that evolve over time? Was it to your liking? For example, you could see being someone who's a programmer being sort of then pushed more toward a managerial kind of role. They may say, hey, I don't want to go in this direction. Just leave me with my code. How has that process been for you? And how the heck do you balance all that? I guess what happened with me is I sort of collected careers over time and, and for a long time didn't leave any behind. So my very first job out of school was in consulting. Interestingly enough, I would actually say that of all the hats I've worn, it's, that's probably the one that I'm most comfortable with for several reasons. But I moved from that into teaching, but I kept consulting while I was teaching and moved from there to a section head position, first level leadership position at the Naval Research Laboratory. But at least for the first year that I was there, I kept teaching and consulting while I was doing that, while also commuting back and forth between New York and DC, at which time my son was born. I finally realized it was time to maybe slow down and, and focus a bit more. But I just sort of collected these activities up and, and kind of kept them going. I guess eventually what enabled me to focus was that the software engineering piece, and I guess specifically the interest in modern Fortran, sort of became the common thread for the things that I was really passionate about. And I was able to eventually sort of drop the stuff that didn't necessarily relate to that. So for example, when I was doing consulting early in my career, it was mostly accident investigations, which was great, but very interesting work in some regards, but didn't involve much coding and certainly not, you know, writing Fortran codes from scratch. In fact, one of the problems in accident investigations is that a lot of the work is driven by litigation. And so I'd end up testifying in a deposition or in court. Your job there is to convince a jury of your peers. Well, the peers aren't going to be necessarily a group of engineers or scientists, or what have you. And so even saying that you solved the Navier-Stokes equations will actually hurt your case <laughs> because nobody will understand what you're talking about. A lot of the work had more to do with back of the envelope calculations and lab work and, and that sort of thing. Even though I didn't necessarily get into that kind of consulting, I did very much like consulting. I liked helping people, solving problems for clients. I liked the fact that in consulting, a lot of the work comes to you. And so you have a much higher hit rate oftentimes on going after work if you do have to go after it and, and a lot of it just walks in the door. I also always really enjoyed teaching. And so I've been able to keep that along both by being a lecturer at Stanford. So I've taught a class based on my book several times at Stanford as a, as a lecturer and also as a visiting professor at the University of Cyprus, for example. And so I've been able to kind of keep that along like in my grab bag, but now focus it in on this one thing, which is the modern Fortran. So when you talked about your consultancy and sort of the needs of clients, how have those needs changed over time? Early on with the courses, we were primarily teaching object-oriented programming and object-oriented design patterns. The book only goes parallel at the very end, the last chapter of the book. But when I would go out and teach the classes, it seemed that that was the parallel programming was the piece that people were the most interested in. You know, they weren't so interested in the, in the object-oriented programming concepts. Eventually, I started to get more excited about the parallel programming as well. And I think, you know, people can sense that excitement and eventually they said, well, why don't you just move this to the front of the class? And so typically, you know, I mean, I tailor each course to the site where I'm teaching it. And most of these sites are national labs or companies. Typically now I start out parallel 
right from the very first line of code and stay parallel throughout. What's interesting, and, and I still work in the object oriented programming, but I try to bring it in in service to parallelism. What's interesting is that now somehow, and I don't know exactly what changed this, it's kind of come full circle where now people are actually more interested in the object oriented programming, maybe even more so than the parallelism. <laughs> I guess that's the biggest change that I've seen. That's interesting that you start with parallelism because it's at least for a lot of the, the users that I support, you start with, you know, a, a simple script and then the parallelism is sort of an afterthought like, oh, I need to run this thing in a high scale. Let me hold on. Let me submit this to 10,000 jobs at once. The parallel features, at least in modern Fortran, have now come into the language in such a natural way that my new motto is serial code is legacy code. The parallelism is so straightforward that there's almost no reason not to go parallel. It's funny when people start talking about parallel programming and parallel algorithm development, we typically talk of it in terms of how do I parallelize this application or how do I parallelize this algorithm? What I would say is that we can flip that on its head now. Nature itself is inherently parallel. Everything I'm saying to you could be heard simultaneously by someone across the room. So the question to me isn't so much, how do I parallelize this application? It's why would I ever serialize it? <laughs> Unless you truly are working on an application where performance doesn't matter. And that's a very important application domain to recognize as well. I've been in all these different arenas and wherever I go, I, I always kind of look around and say, okay, why does this place exist? Like what's really the motivator? And I remember when I first got to Sandia National Labs, which is part of the Department of Energy. And my take on it is that the Department of Energy National Laboratories exist to do things on a large scale. So in that setting, I oftentimes found that if you weren't running on tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of cores, nobody would even really take what you're doing seriously. Since left DOE and I'm working with clients who are doing really important things, code that, for example, licenses nuclear fuel or code that designs airbags or, you know, and models airbag deployment. And I'm running into these applications that are really important, but don't have performance problems. It runs in seconds and does very useful things. And if that's the case, then maybe you don't need to go parallel because the difference between getting your simulation done in seconds versus microseconds probably isn't so important. Even though I came up with this philosophy of, you know, serial code is legacy code. I'm also now coming around to remembering that not every code has to be parallel. I think that has an interesting parallel, no pun intended, with <laughs> data for many years, you know, that's been super trendy to talk about big data and the biggest data, and that's the best for scientific discovery. But you know what? There are small and medium data sets that are also valuable, and right. we can't really forget that. Right. So I have to ask, what does research software engineering mean to you? My understanding is that it first took off in the UK and I don't know exactly when it caught on in the US, but I would say it was probably within the last 10 years or so that it actually became, let's say, a job title and at a recognizable professional path. I'm actually an advisor to a center that is founded by Professor Jeff Carver at the University of Alabama, which is a center for research software engineering that he launched a couple of years back. And before that, I was familiar with research software engineers at, at Princeton. I think that campus, for one reason or another, has been you know, one of the early ones in the U.S. To, to recognize research software engineering. I guess, to some extent, you could just say research software engineering is any time someone is actually trying to apply professional software development practices 
to research settings, which, as I said, back in my days, grad school wasn't so common. Although software engineering itself was, you know, sort of an early field back then as well. Before we started the interview, I was saying that when you first approached me, it was the first time I'd heard someone apply the title to me. And I think it does apply to a lot of what I do. And yet at the same time, when I'm working with an engineer who, for example, is modeling airbags, this is someone who actually has quarterly production deadlines and has products, like the company has something like a 35% market share. This is definitely not a research laboratory. This is real-time production work where you know product has to get out the door. Research software engineer doesn't necessarily apply to everything that I do, but it's all, I'd say, either scientific or engineering software. I think the reason that we don't see more groups at institutions is because it's a fairly new movement, but also a lot of institutions are just really struggling with creating RSC groups in terms of how do they create awareness? How are they going to basically generate some business model so that the group is sustainable beyond sort of traditional academic that relies on grants? Since you started Sorcery, is there any wisdom from that that you could give to these groups as advice? Wow, that's a tough one. Over the course of my career, I guess I've been out of grad school 23 years now, and there's about six years of which I spent in academia full-time, first at the City College of New York on the faculty, and then one year at Stanford in a staff position, which is how I met your boss, Ruth. You know, that's a minority of the years in my career, I guess. So I, I don't have as much advice about how to get these things started in an academic setting other than to at least recognize their importance and, and to recognize the extent to which science could progress faster if we were writing better code. I remember when I first started grad school, people handing me code that I might use in my research and the first time around not even being able to get the code to compile. <laughs> I also think about what life is like for a new grad student coming into a group that has a significant code base that they're working with and someone's trying to come up to speed on it. One of the philosophies that has driven my code design as often as possible is best summed up by someone who influenced me early on, Catherine Long at Texas Tech University. She said software abstractions should resemble blackboard abstractions. Let's say you took a junior undergrad in mechanical engineering and they took their first course in fluid dynamics and they had just seen the Navier-Stokes equations for the first time. And then you walk them over to an actual computational fluid dynamics code. They generally would not find anything on the screen that even remotely resembles what they just saw in a textbook. That doesn't have to be the case. We actually can have abstractions that we work with in software that are much closer to the abstractions that we're used to working with in a textbook or on a blackboard or what have you. I definitely agree that grad school is disorganized in the sense that, you know, it would be fantastic if we learned a functional programming language that could better help us to parallelize something. But it's usually the case that we finish our program and we get a job and then we're thrown into something and we just have to figure it out. And maybe there isn't someone there that has the wisdom of a, of a really good way to do something, which is worrisome and kind of makes me hope that at some point there will be sort of training in research software engineering, at least just a little bit to kind of push people in the right direction. Yeah, training is definitely the key. And so I guess that's why these training courses have become pretty popular because this is material that's not taught in universities very much. A lot of it is because if you look at what dominates 
scientific computing, the top supercomputers, mostly what you're seeing run is Fortran, C, C++. Those are old languages, 30, 40, and almost 60 years old. Most computer science departments are moving on and developing new languages. And, and even outside of computer science departments, there are new languages coming out all the time. There's not so much passion for teaching these 30, 40, and 60-year-old languages, even though the languages themselves are evolving and becoming more and more modern all the time. Fortran in particular, since it has a, a narrow application domain, that being primarily you know, science and engineering codes, you just won't find it taught as much by computer science departments. And then the engineering or science departments tend not to teach programming. I think this is the sort of stuff that really only gets taught in sort of a short course training or tutorial type setting. And hopefully as research software engineering grows, we'll start to see, see more of those and maybe start to see the university classes come around too. So we're coming up on time and I have just a few more questions. Are there any specific projects or software that you are especially proud of? The beam physics code was the one code that I've worked on that involved some special relativity. You have to take uh, relativity into account in order to get the particle trajectories right in the beam because they're moving close to the speed of light. It was a lot of fun to come home and talk to my son about things like the twin paradox and uh, time dilation and length contraction and what have you. So really fun just to, to jump around, I think. You must be the most awesome dad. <laughs> <laughs> Tell him that. Maybe I should go get him right now. <laughs> Two more questions. I read Reddit and I will say on Reddit, there are some object oriented haters. What would you say <laughs> to these object oriented haters? Oh, that's an interesting one. I would say that it takes a deep appreciation. I mean, I've been doing object oriented programming in one form or another for over 20 years. And I would say that it's really even been only just within the last few years that I came to a, a full appreciation for what it's doing for you. I see codes where there's one file that declares 200 lines of declarations and every procedure in the code uses the variables in that one file and the procedures themselves might not even have arguments. So you can't really tell the flow of information through this code very easily. You make a change to any one line of code and it could propagate out to affect any of the other N minus one lines of code. <laughs> I would say the key thing that object oriented programming is doing for you is breaking down that coupling. And when you get to design patterns, which are basically the best practices in object oriented programming, you're learning how to write code that's loosely coupled, but highly cohesive. You put code together in a class because that code all works on the data that's in that class. When you have code that's outside of the class, it cannot touch that data directly. And so then you can go in and make extreme changes to the data. You take a scalar and make it array or make it an object or take it out all together and maybe store it somewhere else. And the rest of the code outside of that class doesn't get impacted in any way, shape or form as long as you keep the interface to the class the same. That's what the object oriented programming is really doing for you. I also like that I can connect it with something in the real world. I feel like I'm interacting. That's a great point. I, you know, I gave a really technical answer but you know, the truth of the matter is, I also think people just enjoy the programming process more when it's object oriented code. You like what you're doing more. <laughs> you yeah, can't... I feel like I'm, I'm building the thing, except it's in my computer. Yes. Sorry, <laughs> diabolical laugh. <laughs> you get to work with abstractions that feel natural. 
It's one of the nicest things about it. Very last question. What do you like doing in your free time when you aren't working? I love water sports. And so about six years back, I took up surfing. I haven't been able to get my son so much into water sports, but recently he's taken a liking to skimboarding. So I've been uh, skimboarding more than I have been surfing lately, just because it's something that I can do with him. Pre-pandemic, I spent a lot of time on my bike. In fact, I travel with a folding bicycle. So even when I'm on a business trip, if I'm somewhere like you know Washington, D.C. in the summer where it's, there's a subway system and I don't need a car, I'll just go everywhere with my folding bike. So the funny thing is that most people would actually think that I like biking. And I actually don't like biking very much, at least not road biking. But at some point, it, I concluded that it was the only way I could get myself to exercise because I couldn't get myself to go to the gym or go out for a run or just go out for a ride. Like, why would I go ride in a circle just to come back to where I started? <laughs> but I decided that if I made it my transportation, then I would get more exercise that way. So I spent a lot of time biking and I guess I've kind of begrudgingly learned to like it. I do like mountain biking a lot too. I guess more exciting for me than road biking. Unfortunately, my son likes mountain biking too. And we live near some mountain biking trails. That is so true that it's good to set up a routine that kind of forces you to, to get from point A to point B and to move. Now during stay at home, we all are lumps and rocks without that. <laughs> <laughs> so Damien, it has been so lovely chatting with you. And, you know, I don't do a lot in Fortran, but after talking to you, I am going to take a look and see what I'm missing and, and check out your, your textbook also. So thank you so much for being on RSC Stories and sharing your story. Sure. It's a great language. So uh, as you're exploring it, don't hesitate to reach out. And thanks for inviting me. Definitely will do. Thanks. Bye.